Welcome to the Every Voice Now podcast, where we bring voices of color into the spotlight. I'm Myla Kim. And I'm Ed Gilbreth. In every episode, you'll hear from authors of color about the making of their books, as well as the challenges they had to overcome along the way. Hi, everyone. Helen Lee here, producer of the Every Voice Now podcast. And I'm excited to introduce today's episode featuring Lamar Hardwick, author of the IVP book, Disability and the Church. I was really fortunate to get a chance to interview Lamar along with my co-host and good friend, Ed Gilbreth. And we were both just blown away by so many profound thoughts from Lamar. He has been on this amazing journey ever since he was diagnosed with autism at age 36. And he's had to go through this process of trying to understand himself and become self-aware in a manner that probably we would all benefit from going through ourselves. But what really blew my mind was how he has created an analogy between his own experiences, coming to grips with his autism, and where the church needs to go with its own process of self-awareness. And Lamar will explain this way better than I ever could. So let's dive in and let you all listen to this amazing conversation we had with Lamar Hardwick. are excited to welcome Lamar Hardwick to the Every Voice Now podcast today. Lamar, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's an honor. Well, it's great to have you here. Well, let's talk a little bit about your ethnic identity journey. Could you tell us about your ethnicity and what are some of the key moments in your your ethnic journey that stand out to you as you've become more aware of your ethnic identity? Yeah, so I'm African-American. I grew up living uh, all over being immersed in different cultures. I lived in Germany for a while, but it wasn't until we returned back stateside in El Paso, Texas, and we were actually having a discussion in a class during Black History Month. And at lunchtime, we were sitting at the table, and I remember a classmate basically lamenting uh, some of the tragedies that had happened in our country to enslaved Africans and Black people. And I can I can remember saying something to the effect of asking him because he was saying it from a position of sort of an outsider, meaning, you know, I'm sorry what happened to you guys. And I made the comment uh, to him about his ethnicity, not realizing that he wasn't white. Um, And so he was Hispanic. But for the first time, I remember it, despite living all over the world, that was the first time I can recall um, the reality that there are more ethnicities than just black people and white people. So it was, it was sort of a strange uh, revelation because I had been to Germany. I had been to other places. I knew there were other cultures, but um, sort of the world that I lived in shaped everything in terms of black and white. Lamar, did you ever have any particular points in your own understanding of your ethnic background that stand out to you? Either something that was uh, a moment where you felt really glad to be African-American and another or other moments where you might have felt less than glad? Yeah, I think there's probably um, both incidents, moments where I felt glad and moments where I did not. I think um, one that probably stands out is learning, similar to the revelation I just talked about, is learning that everyone 
uh, as a young boy did not feel uh, the same way about my blackness as I did. And so where there were definitely moments uh, and times in my life and even just being, uh, you know, growing up in a family that sort of celebrated that and wanted us to have the confidence in who we were, were created to be. There were just multiple times and particularly coming back to the States, we left uh, to go to Germany when I was fairly young. I think I was in the first grade. Um, and so you didn't get the same sense that everyone was not as accepting of black people living overseas as I did coming back. And so that was eye opening to me um, that everyone was not as not as happy about the fact that I I was happy about who I was. Tell me a little bit about Lamar as a kid. Would Lamar as a kid, elementary school, or if you just whenever you want to place yourself, would, would that Lamar have expected that you would write a book? Was that something that younger Lamar was dream- thinking about at all? Did you love writing as a kid? Or is this just a, a dream that emerged later on in your life? Mm. It's a good question. I think younger Lamar would probably not be surprised, mostly because I was an avid reader. Um, so I loved books. I love stories. Um, I love documentaries and biographies. I always wanted to read about how something happened, how that person got to where they are. Um, you know, my mom says that I used to read so much, she would have to come in at night and take books off of my face because I would yeah, fall asleep. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I've always loved books. I was the nerdy kid who would read the encyclopedia uh, and just, you know, things that other kids didn't do. So, so I don't think that the younger me would be surprised that I started writing just because books have always been a, a central part of my world. And, and that's how I actually learn to understand the world around me because I, you know, I had some challenges growing up socially. I didn't understand people all the time, but books gave me a window into how the world worked. You had written in your book about your autism diagnosis when you were in your Mm thirties. So it took a few decades before you got to, to that point. So tell us about how that diagnosis either helped or hindered your own journey um, to being a published author. Yeah. I think the first thing that Uh, I should note, and I tell people this, is um, I wasn't diagnosed until I was 36, but around age seven or eight, I knew that there were significant differences between me and other children. I just didn't have a label for it. I didn't know what to call it. We weren't as educated uh, back then as we are now. So I've sort of of stumbled through life having some success, but they're very rough successes. Um, So my diagnosis came as a result of me hitting what I call the proverbial wall uh, back in 2013 uh, as I was transitioning out of the role of a youth pastor into the role of lead pastor. And I had a really difficult time uh, to the extent I finally decided to try to get someone to help me to figure out why have I struggled with these things my entire life? It doesn't seem like I could, I could make myself become the person that everybody seemed to say that I should be, but I couldn't necessarily be that type of person. Um, So having the diagnosis in 2014, it actually, it was two parts. It was sort of a relief because I, for the first time, felt human. I felt like all the ways that I was characterized as a child and even as a, in my early adult years, wasn't because I was weird or weak or uh, a lot of the ways I was characterized. I was just human. 
and it was okay to, to be that. Um, but then also it's a little bit of grief uh, because it was like meeting myself for the first time. The person who I thought I was presenting to the world was much different from what people experienced. So I actually stayed with the therapist that diagnosed me for almost two years, my wife and I, just to sort of unravel that. And when that during that process is when it started to become more helpful for me, because now I had the language to describe how I experienced the world and I could teach others how I experienced the world. Uh, and, it, and it made me a better communicator, which in turn helped me to be a better writer. Um, and so a lot of the reason why I had the platform that I have now um, and being able to write and people appreciate my writing is because of that diagnosis helped me to formulate language that helped people to understand yeah. my journey. Yeah, I'm so glad because obviously we have so much now that we are able to talk about and learn about and share about and learn from you because you have gone on that journey. But it, it's interesting because in your book, you you wrote these words, which was they're difficult to read. But you know, you wrote, I'm often grieved by how subtly we suggest that the disability community hide and live in shame, which, of course, is like the exact opposite of what you were able to experience yourself coming to that that knowledge of your own of your own self and becoming and feeling more human so just talk a little bit mm -hmm. about that that shame that you you see that can occur in the disability community and how have you and your book tried to address that point of grief yeah great question it, it you often see it and and i think you know i'll back up at the people in the disability community um, feel it and see it in ways that able-bodied people don't always recognize. I don't think much of it is by design or intention, um, but it is just by the way that the church is set up and really society is set up in general to make disability a taboo subject, to make it something that is, is an undesirable topic. Uh, and, and in the same way, when it's an undesirable topic uh, and it's a taboo topic, it creates a shroud of shame uh, and stigma around it that um, the people who are, are not allowed to talk about it and the people who are uh, the subjects of the things that the church doesn't spend much time talking about feel it in ways that the people who are not talking about it don't feel and so anytime there, anytime your voice as a, as a person of color or a person with disability is not heard in certain spaces, it automatically creates a shroud of shame and stigma uh, because those voices are, are not welcome and those stories are not welcome. And so that communicates to people that uh, those stories aren't important. Um, they're not necessary for this space to be considered sacred. And so you tend to internalize that and say, well, this must be something that uh, the church is not interested in or the church it repudiates because it's not something that we talk about. So I, I think people in the disability community feel it a lot, probably more than they express, because also if your voice is not allowed in that space, then at some point you stop attempting to make your voice heard in those spaces. Lamar, we talk a lot about on this podcast we talk a lot about the challenges of being part of marginalized groups who are finding their way into publishing but you not only come from the perspective of an author of color 
but also as someone who represents those those with disabilities. Could you tell us about that intersection, the intersection of those two parts of your identity, and what does that look like for you as an author? Yeah, that it's super complicated. You know, particularly over the last couple of years, it's been even more complicated. Um, so if, even if you look at what's happened nationally, let's say we don't have to go back far, but last year, we're still recognizing the challenges of the voices of people of color being heard uh, in an equitable way. And so if you add to that being what I call a double minority, it makes it even much more difficult. Um, and, and a lot of that, I think, is because I don't know, as a society, we've learned to, to do more than one thing at a time. And I don't want to make it seem like a competition. Um, but, you know, the, the conversation has been, and, and re, as it relates to diversity and inclusion and equity, has primarily been about uh, ethnicity and race. And that is a much needed conversation. But because we're so far behind the curve on that, it's even more difficult to talk about issues of of disability because people are just now trying to really get a handle on the ethnicity and race conversation and even the gender conversation. And so it, it, it's almost like we, we find ourselves, those who are people of color and with disabilities who want to write and talk about disability. We find ourselves uh, sometimes being asked to lean more towards the race conversation. And I can certainly speak a lot about that. But one of the reasons why I wrote the book the way I did is because I wanted the, the conversation to be if if we're in a stage and season of our country where we're talking more about diversity and inclusion, let's back up and realize that the largest minority group in the world are, are persons with disabilities. So for me, it's kind of difficult to have that conversation about being more inclusive and more diverse without talking about the largest minority group in the world. But even that in and of itself says something about how we view disability that we totally skipped over 20% of the population um, for the sake of, of talking about diversity and inclusion in other areas, which are needed, but by far persons with disabilities, the largest minority group in the world. And I say this also in the book, it's the only minority group that you can join at any time for any reason. Well, we need to take a quick break, but when we return, Lamar will do a reading for us and we'll talk more about his writing process. So stay tuned, and thanks for listening to the Every Voice Now podcast. Have you heard about the new monthly book club from InterVarsity Press? IVP Book Drop is the perfect club for readers who want to grow spiritually, hear from diverse voices, and start powerful conversations on today's most important cultural topics. Plus, it's only $9.99 each month. When you join IVP Book Drop, you'll receive our best-selling title, Reading While Black, by Issa McCauley as your very first book. And after that, you'll continue to receive one curated book a month for just $9.99. As a listener of the Every Voice Now podcast, you already know many of the diverse authors featured, like Drew Jackson and Issa McCauley, and you'll meet even more authors like them each month. IVP Book Drop is the easiest and most affordable way to receive the latest IVP books from your favorite authors. To learn more and join today for only $9.99, visit ivypress.com slash evn22. 
That's ivypress.com slash EVN22. Save big on books worth talking about by signing up for IVP Book Drop today. Welcome back to the Every Voice Now podcast. I'm Helen Lee, and it's time for our Behind the Word segment, where Lamar will be reading a passage from his book, Disability in the Church. And then we're going to find out a little more about what went on behind the scenes of writing that passage. So Lamar, tell us a little bit about what you'll be reading for us today, and why did you select this portion from your book? Yeah, so I'm going to read a little bit from the introduction of my book, which is entitled A Love Letter to the Church from an Autistic Pastor. Uh, And I'm reading this section because it, uh, for me, sets up the foundation of an observation that I have made about the church and how it relates to my own journey of being diagnosed on the autism spectrum. As an autism advocate, I take very seriously the need to provide resources and support to those in the autism community. It is a cause to which I have given my life since being diagnosed in 2014. And as a pastor, husband, and father, I openly use my platform and experience to help serve and educate the world about autism. My aim is to draw a parallel from my own personal diagnosis experience to the current social unrest in our nation. I am often asked why I wasn't diagnosed as a child. I was born in 1978. We didn't know much about autism then, and the little we did know was a very narrow and rigid understanding of what it actually was and what it wasn't. I also moved around a lot, so people attributed my inability to adjust well socially to my never being in the same spot for more than a few years. Out of all the factors that may have led to the years of living with undiagnosed autism, I think the biggest factor is that my developmental history is sort of a mystery. In reality, we didn't know what to look for then. So as the years went on, the struggles I did have were attributed mainly to character flaws or behavioral issues. I can't blame anyone, and I certainly don't blame my parents. We simply didn't know what the development of a child should look like in the way we understand it now. As long as I was walking and talking, everything appeared to be just fine. Being diagnosed with autism in 2014 at age 36 not only helped to bring some closure to a very difficult period in my life, but it also helped to promote a series of conversations about both past development and future direction of my life. Finally coming to an understanding of who I was and why I thought, saw, and heard the world the way that I did has changed me for the better. As a result, I understand the world around me in a much different way than before. Here's where I'd like to draw a parallel. In a time of social, civil, and racial unrest in our country, I believe that the church has lived with the same silent struggle that I experienced until a few years ago. Like me, the church has excelled despite her difficulties. She is indeed a great institution. She has grown up and had a lot of success, but she has still struggled. And many of her self-taught coping strategies are no longer working. I believe that much like my story, her story of success has finally driven her into the spotlight. And with that spotlight comes the need to address some deep internal struggles. Like me, the Christian church has a mysterious developmental history. She has been left to grow into adulthood without understanding herself fully. Her history is hazy and her memories are minimal. The result is a church that struggles to find herself and appreciate both the beauty and the burden of living up to her fullest potential by embracing her ideals and core values that all people are created equal. As a child, I learned to give my life to something greater than myself. As an adult, I learned that one of the secrets of fully devoting your life to something greater than yourself is having the courage to look outside yourself to get the best understanding of who you really are. For me, that meant having the courage to listen to people comment on their experiences with me 
It meant learning to unlearn how to deny, defend, and dismiss what everyone else seemed to know about me except me. It meant asking myself a tough question. What do people experience when they experience me? It's a dangerous question, but it's the question that led me to my diagnosis. It's the question that led me to the conclusion that everyone can't be wrong. And while I'm sure that there are some people who are making comments about me only for the sake of divisiveness, there were enough incidents and verifiable evidence to suggest that I take their ob objective observations seriously. It is time for the church, as great as she is, to find the courage to ask the questions that I had to ask myself. What do people experience when they experience the church? And what part of what they're saying is true? Wow, that analogy is incredible. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's powerful and, and profound. I agree. That is, that's the question for the moment right now. We had the, the wherewithal and the honesty and self-awareness to be able to, to honestly ask that question as, as the people of God, I think, can make a huge difference. Yeah. Yeah, I think what you're suggesting, Lamar, takes incredible courage to be able to say, I want an absolute honest reckoning with who I am, and I want an absolute honest view of who I am. I don't know. I feel like we haven't quite seen that response from the church, uh, especially in, in the wake of more recent scandals, more recent challenges and issues that have cropped up all over the place. Do you have any suggestions for how the church more broadly or church leaders um, in particular can start to t travel that road and and reach the point that you did of being willing to ask those hard questions? Any insights there that you could offer? Yeah, I think that, you know, oftentimes people will uh, commend me for how self-aware I am. But a lot of that self-awareness came to be by developing the discipline and the practice of paying attention to what people were experiencing when they were around me. So, so self-awareness cannot be totally attained by only being aware of how you feel about you. Um, and I think we live in a culture where we've taught ourselves that we should not care what other people think. And I think to a certain extent, there's some truth that we don't want our lives to totally be shaped by people's attacks or their applause. But to get an honest reckoning of who I am and how I present myself to the world, it takes the courage to actually listen to people's interaction. And, and that was my experience. Those were not things that I hadn't heard before. I heard it my whole life for people's interactions with me socially. It was coming to a place of having to finally say everyone can't be wrong. There are enough people who are having negative experiences with me, even if it wasn't my intention. So I think listening to the voices of people who are outside of the church and what they're saying, but then also having the courage to say whether we intended to hurt them or not is not the issue. The issue is this is what they're experiencing. And I think a lot of in a lot of ways, the church defends itself because we can lean on the fact that it's not our intention. Well, in, intention only matters to the offender. It doesn't matter to those who are offended. So if you step on my foot, even though you didn't mean to, it still hurts me. <laughs> and so we have to reckon with the fact that whether you meant to do it or not, we still have to address the result 
of the action. And I think the church has to get better at listening to the voices of those around us. I, I tell people all the time, I think Jesus was great at it. If you remember the story of him sitting around with his disciples and saying, who do people say that I am? Right. He's trying to get his finger on the pulse of what the community thinks about what he's been doing and the ministry that's going on. Um, so I think we we over spiritualize it. I think he really wanted to know what what's the mm. word on the street? What how are people receiving us? What are people thinking about what we're doing? Um, because I often share in training that, you know, your quote unquote brand is not necessarily who you mm-hmm. say you are. It's what people receive yeah. from you. Uh, and so the church just has to be better at listening to the voices of people who have felt marginalized by the church. Everyone can't be wrong. Could you tell us about some of the response, the reactions you've received about the book from the church? Have people been responding with love or have you had a had to weather any critiques or criticisms for what you've written? Yeah, I'll, I'll start with the criticism first. Um you know, in in anything you do, when you try to write something that's that speaks to the nature of the church and the experiences of uh, persons in the church that are not the dominant culture, um, I think there's always going to be some pushback. There's always going to be some critique of that, um, which, which I totally understand. That's our natural response. It's like family systems theory. That anything that changes in the system the system is always going to seek to protect itself at all costs. On the other hand, you know, there's been uh, a great receptivity uh, from a lot of people um, who are appreciating the book. And a lot of, a lot of the people that are really receptive to the book have been persons who this directly impacts, who have also had struggles with the church. So so part of what I try to do with the book is to write it, you know, have enough theology in that will interest pastors, but also make it accessible enough for the average everyday family that's impacted by autism or disability. A quick read that they can read and understand and then say, these are the tools that I need to go to my church and explain to them why we need them to be more inclusive of my child with autism or my daughter with Down syndrome or my elderly father with dementia. Um, so those are the people who have really been receptive, but churches as, as organizations, I've found I've, and I'm not going to say they're not receptive, but I have not had as much, um, interest as far as approaching me about, you know, unpacking further the book or, uh, speaking about it further, or even interest in, in learning more. So tons and tons of families in the churches or families with disabilities that are trying to get into the church, very receptive, but as organizations, there hasn't been um, as much receptivity uh, or response as I would have liked to have seen. What do you attribute that to, or have you thought about why that's the case? Um, lots of reasons. I think it's still a very taboo subject. I think, um, I don't want to say that churches are disinterested. I think there are a lot of other things that churches are struggling with. And then you slap COVID in the middle of this. Um, and so there's just been a lot of churches that are struggling to hold it together, um, that are struggling to, um, to rebuild, to retain membership. But then I think just as a general, even if COVID hadn't happened, I think one of the general things that we're always fighting against is that it's not 
in most churches, I won't say in all churches, but in most churches, it's not the primary source of concern as far as how the church is constructed in terms of their mission, vision, and values. And I talk about that in the book um, where Jesus teaches about the the banquet. He teaches about a, a, a party while he was at a dinner party. And uh, he says in, in the story that he sent out the servant to invite the, the lame the blind, the cripple, and the poor, those who are on the margins. And a servant does that, and he comes back and says, and there's still room for more. And what I think happens a lot in our churches is that we built it backwards. So if we don't start with the disability community in mind, it's very hard to fit them into our conversations, our budgets, our visions. But if we start with that community in mind, and really any marginalized community, there's always room to do everything else that you want to do in your church. And so I think the reason why it's tough is that we built, and particularly in the West, we built our churches backwards. So it's always going to be an uphill battle to get people to participate in this conversation. Wow. So, so much profundity coming from Lamar, and I can't wait to keep this conversation going. We need to take a quick break, but when we return, we will continue more uh, conversation with Lamar. And we're going to find out a little more about his personal writing habits, maybe a few quirks. So you'll also find out how to get a special discount on his book, Disability in the Church. So stay tuned. And thanks for listening to the Every Voice Now podcast. Myla, it is incredible to me that IVP is about to turn 75 years old. Do you believe that? That's amazing. I know. That is amazing. I mean, considering that so many book publishers have come and gone during that time. And so I'm so grateful to be part of such a long-standing legacy. Well, it's a testimony to IVP's commitment to publishing quality books, not to mention books by a diversity of authors. And this has been IVP's MO for the majority of its history. Yeah, and we keep finding more voices of color to highlight each and every season. And so visit everyvoicenow.com to find out how you can get a great discount on today's featured book and many more. You are listening to the Every Voice Now podcast, and I'm Ed Gilbreth. Today, we've been talking with Lamar Hardwick, author of Disability and the Church. And keep listening to find out how you can get a special 40% discount on this book at ivypress.com. But first, let's find out a little bit more about your writing habits and quirks, Lamar. Think about a time when you had writer's block or when it was really hard to keep going. What did you do to push through? What were the habits or disciplines that helped you stay on task? Yeah, I I wish I could say I had habits. (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, I'm more inspirationally driven. And so unlike most writers where they have like a disciplined day where they write, um, for me, once I've walked and I've processed and I've thought about it, and sometimes I'll listen to a podcast while I walk, or even when I'm exercising, then it'll hit me. And it could have been three or four days since I've written last. But once the inspiration hits me, uh, after our process, I could write a chapter, um, and so it's my writing style is much less structured than I'd probably like it to be, but it <laughs> works for me. Right. Um, so I kind of go off of, okay, I'm ready to go and I have to get in front of the computer and just let it all out. And sometimes, like I said, it can end up being an entire chapter plus in, in one sitting. Are there other authors you model yourself after or whose, uh, habits and quirks have made an impression on you? 
I'm a huge Malcolm Gladwell fan. Um, I, I like the way that he can take a an issue that is close to him um, and then connect it to a much larger issue um, systemically or societally. So uh, I tend to to gravitate towards that style where it it's not academic. There's a term I just learned about called scholarly personal narrative, where you you take um, you know, an issue or a story that's important to your life or somehow connects to your life and you connect it to a much broader. And that was sort of the feel that I was trying to go for in the book is to use my story as a platform to talk about big theological ideas, um, but make sure that there's a narrative in the story that people can follow. Lamar, do you have any advice for up and coming authors who struggle with disability and who want to get published? Is there anything specific you'd want to say to to writers in that community in particular? Yeah, I I would say um, to know that your voice is valuable, that we need it. Um, And so continue to push forward, continue to to write uh, as a practice. Uh, A lot of the writing that I uh, did in the book came from thoughts and ideas of years of blogging that I just expanded on and did more research on. So uh, never stop writing and know the value of your voice. The more voices of the disability community that we can get published, the more increased learning there'll be on this subject and it'll help to shape the church for the better in the future. It's clear just listening to you, Lamar, that you love the church and you want to help her do better in this this area. As we conclude, could you uh, just leave us with some thoughts for for those in the church who, who want to do better and, and would like to see improvements in terms of ministering to the disability community? Yeah, I, I would say, one, the church actually has a rich history. Um, I, I still in my research can't pinpoint where it pivoted, but uh, up until probably around the second or third century, that's what the church was known for. Uh, so much so, uh, the emperor that followed Constantine said that we can't even return back to the pagan religion unless we do a better job than the Christians of taking care of the orphans, the widows, and the sick. Uh, because he knew that that was the mark of Christianity. So we are always great at being inclusive of persons with disabilities. Um, so, so I would encourage us to know our rich legacy in history and fight for an opportunity to return to that as being the hallmark of who we are and what we're known by. Um, But then also I would say, you know, the reason why I continue to love the church, even though I've personally had a difficult time and many others have in the disability community as well is because there's no plan B. Jesus didn't leave the keys to the kingdom with any other organization. So, um, you know, this is all we have. And so I, I believe strongly that there's beauty uh, in, in the local church. And so, you know, I continue to contend for that because Jesus didn't really give us another option. Uh, we're the ones who he gave the keys to his kingdom to. And so it, it's on us. Um, so I would encourage us to know that we we have to do better. Well, thank you for that encouragement, Lamar. I think we've come to the end of our time together. But before we go, we want to give you a few moments to share with our listeners about any special projects you have going on right now and uh, how people can best reach you, Lamar. Yeah, so right now it's just continuing to try to share the book um, with everyone and to 
you know, now that I'm, I'm able to travel again a little bit is to get out and, and share the message and to actually help equip new leaders. Um, so, so that's really what I've been working on and focusing on. And it's to get in touch with me is really simple. Um, I have a website. It's autismpastor.com. Uh, autismpastor.com. On there, you'll be able to find connections to all my social media um, links to my books, past blogs, even links to other organizations that I've written for. Um, there's even a calendar where I'll be uh, as I'm starting to pick up speaking and traveling again. So that's the best way to find me is go to autismpastor.com. All right, we'll get that in the show notes. We will, we will. Well, thank you so much, Lamar. It has been an honor and privilege to have you on the show today. Thanks for having me. And now we want to share with all of you that you can find Disability and the Church at everyvoicenow.com. And if you use the code EVN40, you can get 40% off and free U.S. shipping. So visit our site to get a great deal on this important and much needed book. Thanks, everyone, for listening to the Every Voice Now podcast brought to you by IVP. Our producer is Helen Lee, and our sound engineer is Jonathan Clausen. If you are enjoying our show, please share about it with your friends. We'd be grateful for your reviews and recommendations on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And we'd love to hear from you directly anytime. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Every Voice Now, or you can email us with your comments, questions, or suggestions at evn at ivpress.com. And join us next time for another inspiring episode of Every Voice Now. Every Voice Now.